Well, I want you to think about this this morning, and there's this reality that not one of us in this room chose what family we were born into. And I'm just curious, is if you had the opportunity to go back, would you choose differently? So let's see a show of hands, like who would choose to be born into a different family? Just kidding, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hands. That was, that was a total setup, all right? So, so we, don't, we don't choose what family we're born into, and yet at the same time, our families are the very first places that we look for some sense of identity and, and some sense of trying to figure out who we are and where we belong. You know, family is that place that um, we, we learn how to, to relate to other people, we learn how to communicate, and we have our very first memories and experiences of this thing called life that is just filled with so many joys and sorrows. And, and if you look around this, this world, really, we're confronted with a heart-wrenching reality, and that reality is that there are many children who do not have homes. And so where's the child to look for any sense of belonging or identity if they don't have a place to call home? Where do they turn? Where do they look? And even if a child is adopted, how do they process this, this fact or this reality that their biological parents didn't have the capacity to raise them? Or what do they do with these emotions or these feelings that they are unwanted? A lot of people wrestle with these things. And a lot of people feel like they don't know where their place is in this world. And the reality for each and every person in this room, no matter what the status of your biological family may be, the, the, the biblical reality is that we are born into this world as spiritual orphans. We are all spiritually disconnected from the God who created us. That, that's how we're born into this world. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knowing our condition as orphans, has come. And he's come so that we could be adopted into his eternal family so that we might know who we are and where we belong. And so if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know we're studying through the book of Ephesians. And if you have your Bibles, you can open there now. We'll also have some scripture up on the screen. But, but as Paul has introduced this book to us, he has made this declaration that, that everyone who is a part of the church in Ephesus, he says, to the saints in Ephesus. And this past week has been fun for me because I've had multiple conversations with many of you. And, and many people are like, man, I am just wrestling with this idea that I'm a saint. Like, uh, that's just a stretch for me to, to really swallow that. And yet we see that if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith in the gospel, God says that you're a saint. And the response of a saint is to worship, which is what we've seen Paul begin to do in chapter one, starting in verse three, after he makes these identity statements, he, he just bursts out into worship. And so we're going to read verse three again to give us context for the rest of this. But we're going to see today that not only are we saints and not only are we worshipers, but God has declared that we are his own children. Your identity, if you're in Christ, is that you are a child of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. So Ephesians one, starting in verse three. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Anyone have a conversation like that with someone this week? <laughs> Use those terms and phrases. I mean, this, this, this is what we would call insider talk, right? This is, this is Paul addressing the church, the children of God, with this, these, these big words and these lofty concepts, these spiritual realities for those who are in Christ. And they really are baffling to the mind. And we learn that, that one of the ways that God has blessed us in Christ is through choosing us, through loving us, and through adopting us into his family. And that's what we're going to see as we trek through this passage today. So let's go ahead and start diving into verse 4. It says this, it says, He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. All right, so, so it's important for us to understand the context here. Paul is writing to those who have already believed. These are people who have already put their faith in Christ and who compose the church. And so what Paul is doing is, is he's explaining to them. He's saying, hey, I know you guys believed. I know you came to faith. I know you're a part of the church, but I want you to understand the depth of what really happened to you. This, this, this reality that, that you have now found salvation in Christ this was before the foundations of the world. Try to wrap your mind around that. And I don't think anyone in this room would say, okay, if God does exist, like he, he is the author of life, and, and maybe even you'd go as far to say, yes, God is the giver of, of all blessing. But when it comes to this idea uh, that God is eternally sovereign, that he is in control of all things over all time, we might get a little squirrely with that. Especially this idea that, that God chose us before the foundations of the world to receive salvation. And I believe what Paul is, is teaching here is that behind every profession of faith is a divine act of God. And we're going to keep diving in to explore this further. So, this idea of God choosing us before the foundations of the world, uh, again, is, is known as the doctrine of election. Uh, and, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't studied this doctrine in depth, but we see it unfold really throughout the entire book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we're, we're confronted with some pretty big, tough words that we have to grapple with, right? Like, okay, Paul's saying God chose us. And then in verse 5, it says he predestined us. And then that word predestination is used again in verse 11. This word predestined means to decide beforehand or to pre determined. God knew ahead of time who would come to faith. And Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book, if you like depth of theology, it's you know, about as fat as you can make your hand. Um, it's a great book. But here's how he defines election. He says this, it's an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign Good pleasure. God is God. And God is the one who decides how things work in this world. But when I was first confronted with this doctrine of election, I was a senior in college. And I was already a follower of Jesus. And, 
And, and, and I started wrestling through this idea, and I just need to be honest with you, I was adamantly opposed to this teaching. Okay? It did not make sense at all to me. It actually troubled me, you know, because I'm an American. I have choices. I have freedom. And this just was like a direct affront to everything that I valued. Okay? So this was, this was a challenging doctrine for me to look at honestly because it was so emotionally stirring for me. But just because I couldn't wrap my mind around it, just because I didn't understand it, doesn't make it not true. And it's important for us to know and for me to note at this point in time that there are many God-loving, Jesus-following, Spirit-filled Christians on this planet right now and throughout the centuries who have not readily embraced this doctrine. It's just been too high and lofty, too, too big to comprehend. But I just want to acknowledge as well that this is a real, authentic place to wrestle through the challenges of our faith and doctrine. Just because something might hit you as like, what? I, don't, I just don't get that. I want you to know this is a place, let's process this. Let's dialogue about this. Let's, let's wrestle with the scriptures. And that's one thing that I just, I need to put before you guys is that as a church, we are committed to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. The word of God is eternal, is everlasting. It's spoken from the eternal God and we submit to the authority of the word of God. The word of God does not submit to the authority of our ways of thinking. And so you can just know that we're not going to try to twist the scriptures to manipulate them to, to say something they're not really saying. We're going to deal with them head on and wrestle with the real tensions and challenges that brings into our minds and our hearts. And so, uh, again, as I wrestled through this doctrine for over a decade now, I, I do believe it to be true, but I don't pretend like I fully understand it, nor am I always comfortable with it. Say, so I just, I just want to leave that with you. And then I want to acknowledge this, is that the Bible is filled with paradoxical tensions. If we are honestly reading through the scriptures for what it is saying, there are going to be things that are just like, wow, how do these two things exist together? And yet there are many things in scripture that are not contradictory, but are paradoxical. And we need to acknowledge that. And this is the tension we feel in our passage today, right? Does God choose us? Or do we choose God? Does he... Uh, determine who is going to believe or do we believe unto salvation? Anybody feeling that tension? Anyone curious about that question? Well, let's keep going. So Paul, who, who authored this book of Ephesians, also wrote the book of Romans. Okay, And, and uh, to, to increase your depth of, of knowledge and theology, Romans is probably the best place to go. But this is what Paul says in Romans. He says this in 116. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And then in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, he says this. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him 
will never be disgraced. Okay. So, anyone and everyone who believes the gospel will be saved. Let me just say that. That is a biblical truth. And yet, those who believe are chosen. These things coexist. This is a tension of Scripture that we need to wrestle with. And over the years, as I've heard people um, really try to make arguments against the doctrine of election or, or maybe some of the, the rebuttals to it, is that, well, if God's the one who saves, then, then why should we even pray? Like, why, why should we even pray for God to save anybody? Or if, if God is the one who quickens people to believe why in the world would we evangelize? Why even go and share the gospel? That just doesn't make sense if God's just going to do whatever God wants to do, right? I think that's a fair question. But Paul in Romans also teaches us that, that we're asking the wrong questions when we ask those questions because he himself said this in Romans 10.1. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Other places and other epistles, Paul talks about making prayers for everyone that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. So here Paul is saying, pray for the salvation of not only Israel, but, but for, for every human being. This, is, this needs to be our heart and our desire that everyone would come to taste and see the goodness of God and the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And then in regards to why we would share the gospel, Romans 10, Paul also authoring this, 14 through 15, says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? So we see from Paul's own writing again, the one who wrote the most and taught the most about the doctrine of election, he's saying, pray for people that don't know Jesus. Pray that God would send people out into the world to share the hope of the gospel because people are going to believe and people are going to be saved. So which is it? Does God elect us unto salvation or do we believe unto salvation? One word answer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Both are true and it's a mystery. And we need to be okay with living in the mystery. We are finite in our thinking. God is infinite. And in case you don't believe me, God already told us this in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. This is what God has said. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways and thoughts are higher than ours. Does anyone have a, a problem admitting that? <laughs> Is that hard to think that maybe God knows a little bit more than us, the God who spoke us into existence? And God's saying, hey, there's just going to be some things about the way I operate that you're not going to understand. Because I'm God. I'm infinite. We need to come to a place of peace in that. But I think the biggest question for all of us this morning is, do you or have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a simple question. That's a yes or no answer. And the Bible says that if you have believed in Christ, 
Salvation belongs to you. You are a child of God. Election simply acknowledges that even our faith was given to us by a gracious and loving Father. And if we, we learn in the second half of this verse, we've got to move on. But it says this, uh, He chose us before the foundations of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I told you that scripture tells us that we are all spiritual orphans in need of being adopted into God's family. Well, that's because we are all born into this world under the curse of sin. David in Psalm 51 says this, Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are not born into this world neutral parties. We are born in this world corrupt. We are born with a sin nature. We're we're born separated from God. And that's the inheritance from our first parents. And we learn here that David is acknowledging that God is the eternal judge who executes perfect justice. And he is blameless in all of his ways. He is perfect. And the only way for you and I to enter into the presence of God is if we are blameless and holy as he is. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the, the, the doctrine of imputed righteousness. This idea that, that not one of us can come before God on the basis of our own righteousness. We need the perfect righteousness of another person applied to us. And this is exactly what God has done through Jesus Christ. He sent Christ to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to die sacrificial death in our place, and to rise from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death. And if your faith is in Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. God doesn't look and see your fallenness and your sinfulness anymore. He sees his son. And that's a big deal. If you are in Christ... You are made holy. You are called blameless. And you can come before God. And here's something I think that's important for us to understand too. Is that that God's love for us in Christ. It's not just like an act of pity towards us. It's not just God looking down. Oh poor humanity. I guess I'll just like throw him a bone. That's not his attitude at all. God's attitude towards us is an act of eternal love. That's the posture of God's heart towards us who are in Christ. In verse 5 it says this, In love, the motive of God's heart, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Kent Hughes notes in his commentary this, is that his choosing cannot be separated from his love. This is important for us to understand. And I'll try to illustrate it through uh, my wife and I. So Cheryl and I began dating in college, and uh, we were friends for about three months. And over time, we just were like, man, we really just enjoy hanging out together. I really enjoyed her as a person. We had a lot of fun together. But as our relationship got more serious, I, de- I started to develop deeper affections for her. We started dating, and, and I remember that moment that the words, I love you, first came out of my mouth. 
And for you men, you know the first time you said that to your wife. You probably remember where you were and what was going on inside of you. Because that's intense, right? Like, you just don't go throwing that around. But it was more intense for me because at this point in my life, I had come to Christ. And, and I, had, I had made a vow unto God. I said, Lord, I am not going to tell another woman I love her unless that woman is my wife. And so, in essence, that night in my truck, before, outside of her apartment, when I said, I love you, that was like almost a pre-proposal to me. She didn't know that. And I'm glad she didn't. That would have really freaked her out, right? Like, she didn't know that. But, but I said, I love you. And I knew in my heart, hey, this is a big deal. I genuinely love this woman. And so, and this love, it wasn't just this fleeting emotion, right? I, I walked through the process of going and buying a ring. I walked through the process of going and talking to her father and seeking his blessing and permission and then i went through the process of planning a proposal and proposing and then we went through the wedding itself where cheryl and i stood up before god and through a multitude of witnesses and we pledged we would love each other for as both as long as we both shall live the difference however between my wife's love uh for me and my love for her, is that God's love is eternal. We said, until death do us part. God says, my love for you has been from before you even existed and will be beyond all time. My love is not temporary. My vow to you is eternal. And I don't know if that's hard for you to swallow that, that you would think of God thinking of you that way, But this is the reality for those who are in Christ, is that his affection that has been placed upon you is eternal love. Never ending. Always been. If you are in Christ, you are a loved child of God. Not just a child of God, but a loved child of God. You are an adopted son. You are an adopted daughter. And I believe that this doctrine of adoption, which we go into now, is one of the best pictures of the Christian faith that, uh, that reveals just exactly the, the magnitude of what God has done for us. Think about this for a minute. What does a child bring to a situation or bring into an adoption? They bring the need to be adopted, right? Right? Who's the active agent in adoption? It's the parents, right? Parents decide, hey, we think we should adopt. And then they go through a process. Oh, do it international or do domestic. And you go through this whole process. But at the end of the day, the child is just there, helpless, waiting to be adopted. And it's the parents who take the initiative to go after them and to bring them into their family. And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is what God has done for us. I've been reading a book this week uh, by Brian Borgman, and it's called After They Are Yours, The Grace and Grit of Adoption. Uh, adoption is, is, is not always uh, easy. Oftentimes, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of a situation actually where it's been easy, uh, but it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And he says this in his book, He says, adoption is an act of God's grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God brings us into his family and makes us his own. Through Christ, we are given all legal rights and privileges of God's children. All Christians, then, whether called to adopt children or not, should know and love this doctrine. We should know and love this because we were all once spiritually needy orphans. And yet God in his love adopted us into his family. One of the coolest things for me about this doctrine of adoption is that we see the entire Godhead, the Trinity, is involved in the process. Look at Galatians chapter 4 with me, if you will, verses 4 through 7. Paul again writing to the church of Galatia, and he says these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see the Trinity at work here in our adoption? God the Father, in his perfect time, sending God the Son to redeem us from the curse of the law and the curse of sin, so that we might be filled with God the Spirit and be brought into God's family. I love that. The entire Godhead moving on our behalf, inviting us into the family of God. And it's important for us to note here that God himself exists within community and within relationship himself. There is one God, and yet he exists in three persons. Has anyone ever had a hard time wrapping their mind around the Trinity? Okay, I'm raising my hand because I'm one of them. Okay, again, another mystery of Scripture that we come to a place of just accepting because this is what God has declared about himself. But it's through the collective work of the Trinity that we are brought into the family of God. And through that work, this passage tells us, we can now cry out to him, Abba, Father. And this term Abba is the most intimate of terms that only a child uses in reference to their dad. Now I'm looking at many of you dads out there, and how many of you just delight when your kids come up to you, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. It's an endearing term, right? I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, they're like begging us for something and we want them to leave us alone. But it's such an endearing term, and that's, uh, it's, it's reserved for our kids alone. I was thinking about that. My kids are the only ones that run up to me saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Your kids don't do that. And I'll tell them not to if they do. Say, I'm not your dad. Go to your dad. But this is the sentiment of Abba Father, that God has invited us through Christ and through his spirit to now cry out before him, to to commune with him and to converse with him and to lay our hearts out before him because we aren't slaves anymore. We're sons. He's brought us into his family and he cares about the things his children care about. 
And I don't know if you believe this or not, but God desires connection with his children. He delights in spending time with you. These words in Zephaniah 3.17 I've often wrestled with, but I've found incredibly helpful. It says this, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. And he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. This is our God. This is how he views us. He delights in us. In case you were wondering, he had to add the clarifier, with gladness. He joyfully is delighting in you, in case you didn't know what delight meant. Not only that, but but it says that in love he calms our fears, his presence brings us peace, and he rejoices over you with a song. God sings over you with delight. Is that hard for anyone in this room to receive that? Is that hard for anyone to believe? I think for some of us, if we're honest, we have this picture of God that he's just up in heaven. He's got his arms crossed and he's just looking down at us. He's like, yeah, I guess you're my kid. Right? I don't know why it is, but I think for many of us, we we, we just think God is just constantly disappointed with us or that he constantly is disapproving of us. And yet we read right here that his love for us is eternal, that he delights in us. He wants time with us. This is a big deal. Now, do I always approve of my kids' behavior? No. No, I don't always approve of my kids' behavior. But one thing I never, ever want my kids to question is that their daddy loves them. And I would submit to you, the one thing that God would want you to never question is his love for you. No matter what the circumstances of life, uh, whatever's happening in your world, he has declared his eternal love on all who are in Christ. And God wants us to know that this adoption, this, this way that he has brought us into his family, is one that won't be reversed. God will never abandon his children. And I think for us, even just the, 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 the reality of do- adoption in our world and the process of adoption in our world is a great reflection of this. When you are adopted and you go through the legal process, you are transferred from one family or one situation into a completely different family. You take on that family's last name and you get all of the rights of a child in that family. You're no longer seen in the eyes of the law as an adopted child of God. You are simply a child of that family. And in a spiritual sense, again, in God's family. It's important for us to realize that Jesus is the one who makes the way for us to be adopted, both finally and legally. And it's, it's something that cannot be changed. It's a permanent change of address. Well, how has he done it? Twofold. One, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. When we were 
not blameless, Jesus took the blame for us. He adopted any of, of the wrath of God that would stand against us, and then he also silenced any accusation that Satan would try to throw against you. Any way that the enemy would try to condemn you and to hold your record in front of you and say, see, you're guilty. And Jesus says, no, I paid for that. I've given them a new identity. I've I've brought them into my family. And I don't know about you, but that's extremely good news for me today. To know that, that my adoption into the family of God is final, bought and paid for. There are no more adoption fees. There are no more legal paperwork that needs to be filled out. It's a done deal. And that should bring us incredible comfort to know that our God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he will be sure to see that we get home with him. In John chapter 14 Jesus makes this promise to his disciples. He says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. If your faith is in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. And Jesus right now, is preparing a place in heaven for you. You have a custom-made room in God's house, made by Jesus. And he has promised that he is coming back to take you there. So don't look to, to find your life and your home in this world. Wait for the life and the home that Jesus has promised to all who have trusted in him. Let's wrap up with verse 6. Paul goes on to say, All this happened. He chose us in him. He adopted us. He loved us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, or in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God's will was to reveal the blessings of his grace to us so that he could lavish his love upon us and so that we would praise him for such a great salvation. That we would look at what our father has done for us in bringing us into his family and that we would just marvel. That our heart's response would just be to praise him in response to what he has done. And I pray that as you uh, as, as you think through this, the rest of this day and this week, that you would, you would sit and you would savor and you would meditate on this reality that you, if you are in Christ, you are chosen, you are loved, and you are adopted into the family of God. And you can say with confidence, I'm a child of God. That's your identity declared before the foundation of the world.